Hi, and welcome to the final wrap-up episode of the 2022 season of AGM Watch, brought to you by the Australian Shareholders Association. Each year, we monitor the performance of most of Australia's top 200 companies, protecting the rights of retail shareholders with a dedicated team of volunteer company monitors. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Lewis Gomes a little later, but first up is Mike Roby, who's the Company Monitoring Committee Chair for Victoria. Hi, Mike. Good morning. How are you going, Phil? Good. Thank you very much for coming on. And also, you're on the board of ASA and um, heading up to Sydney soon for a meeting. I am indeed, yes. <laughs> and speaking with the wonderful Fiona Balzer, I believe, today. I will, yes. So the Telstra AGM was held on October 11, and I know you want to speak about them in terms of holding companies, which is a bit of a theme this year, but run us through the challenges. I was going through the VIs and I realised how many challenges Telstra is facing this year. Yes, Telstra was the legacy um, telecoms company, as everybody knows, and not so long ago they made a lot of their money from things like timed calls. Uh, they had long-distance calls, if you recall. Trunk, um, trunk calls, some of them might remember them as, as. And if you've ever been overseas, you've probably been gouged by international roaming charges. <laughs> uh, and texts. Text was one of their major sources of revenue. All of that's gone. So effectively now, the, what used to be major buckets of gold for them has just disappeared because of largely because of social media companies sort of jumping over the top of them. So they've had to restructure their whole business. And they had this sort of creaking system uh, that was basically built up over many years, which did all of their IT work. And they've really had to sort of think, well, if I was a, a new digital startup, how would I set my systems up? So they've had to kind of start from digital out. And they did that a few years ago and under their previous uh, CEO, Andy Penn, and effectively just completed that during the course of uh, this year. So they've done a pretty good job, actually. So when you hear of companies doing turnarounds, this is the one that you should look at because it's actually had to do it. On top of that, unlike most trends these days, the government nationalised the core network rather than privatised it. So it's kind of gone to a communist-style national network, which is the NBN, as you know. And none of the people who buy services from the NBN make much money out of it. So it's a, it's a very difficult business to make money. And all of that migration from the legacy network they had to the NBN is, is over as well. So what they call headwinds, which is the cost of sort of dealing with that change, uh, are largely gone. So they're now pretty well set to be a digital sort of out um, telecoms company. So mm. the structure you mentioned, mm. in order to sort of service some of the aspects of the business without being uh, subject to onerous either regulatory uh, oversight because it's not necessary in some parts of their business, they've actually set up a holding company which they asked shareholders to sort of uh, agree to in the last um, at, at the end of the last AGM. And they've, they've broken it up into four companies under that. One's called Servco, which is the, the, the company we all love and hate which is the one that basically deals with your customers and so on, including those new systems. Telstra International, which is largely all of the optic fibre cables that crisscross the oceans of the world that they've got uh, equity in, and the, bit, and the bits where they pop up out onto land, which you need a sort of an exchange and to deal with international customer requirements and so on. Then a the thing called InfraCo, which is the fixed network that you see, all the, all the wires the ducts, the exchanges, the big exchanges, the little ones in every country town, that's in this Infraco business. Because and that's then um, lastly, sorry, just before you go into the last oh, one, but that's um, yeah. that's quite a valuable part. Those pits that um, oh, they, they are. Own, so, they? so, yeah. so holes in the ground are worth lots of money because they cost. You cannot build a new hole in the ground in a in a big city, for example. And so, anybody that wants to provide any sort of service through any kind of cable has to hire your hole. <laughs> so, you know, holes are us really is what Telstra's about in, in cities. Um, it's amazing, isn't it, to think about some, sometimes the way these um, things work and uh, change well, the, the revenue they're a, leg they're a legacy problem that they had, yeah. but they're now a legacy opportunity because yeah. they can sort of do that. And, of course, with sort of consumer demands for less sort of unsightly cables hanging around off poles. And so if you want to bury them, well, you're welcome to pay us a little bit of money and we'll let you put your wires down through our holes. And um, I, derailed, I derailed you, so the last point that you were going to make? Oh, so the last one was the, the mobile networks, the, the sort of towers that you see all over the place, including ones that are supposed to look like European fir trees and so on. So they've actually already sold off just under half of the, all of their tower assets to uh, basically the, the our future fund, the Australian future fund, and a, and a 
uh, a superannuation fund in Australia. So they've got just over 50% of that. All of those assets are worth a heap of money and they can start to monetize them now that they're in this holding company. So, for example, if Telstra were to want to buy back into the NBN, which the government has sort of hinted they want to sort of get private equity, then they could do that by sort of monetizing some of these assets in that holding company. So very interesting structure to sort of sort of free themselves from some of the issues associated with having that in a big consolidated company by making uh, the processes much easier for getting loans and, and selling assets and so on. So that's... And, and presumably it has um, an effect on the overall uh, company balance sheet, uh, like dividing them off into different areas has only the implications in those particular holding companies. Is that yes, it doesn't actually necessarily, it doesn't change anything for shareholders, but what it does do is it means that if you want to do anything in one of those little areas of operation, it's just a lot easier to do it. So mm. normally you'd be under the scrutiny of regulation for all sorts of things, but if it's just a hole in the ground, you don't need that sort of regulation that applies to the whole company. You just need to sort of deal with uh, the issues associated with that particular component. So, And the, the capital markets see you differently when you've got these sorts of structures as well. So you may have better capital structure for borrowing money if you've got a much more solid asset like a mobile tower asset is liquid gold. So you probably get a better interest rate and so on. So that's, that's part of the reason they do it. Just ease of doing business just goes up. What are your thoughts on Vicky Brady's appointment as CEO? Well, this is an interesting one because, as you know, we don't have very many women CEOs in Australia. And she was and an Vicky's, internal appointment as well, wasn't she? She was. So two, two good things. One, you don't have to go overseas and sort of pay through the, an arm and a leg from somebody who probably don't necessarily trust their CVs as being 100% honest. You've seen this person at first hand over a number of years. She ran the consumer business, which is arguably the most complex and most competitive business that Telstra runs and very large. And she was also the CFO, so fantastic um, credentials. And I, I'm, I'm sure she's a great, uh, a great appointment. So, and also the, the interesting thing I found was that she was paid exactly what Andy Penn was paid. So they didn't kind of put a, you know, a, a female discount, which quite a lot of people do in uh, large companies. Mm, and I believe she uh, came across quite impressively at the AGM. Yes, she's a very good uh, speaker and you, you need a good communicator in, in order to communicate complex things and she can do that quite well, probably because of the track record in having run these complex businesses. She's had to sort of get her head around some of the things. that uh, So a very good asset, I think, to the corporate world in, in Australia. I believe this holding company structure now has been become a bit of a fashion across some other ASX-listed companies, and um, one of the other ones is ANZ. Tell us about ANZ and how they're using this holding company so this structure. So this is another interesting one, and a bit similar sorts of um, pressures, Phil, because um, ANZ, as you know, is subject to some of the most uh, stringent regulations under the APRA, which is the Prudential Regulation Authority, largely coming from uh, the financial services inquiry. Um, so what they've chosen to do, and not yet voted on, but will happen in mid-December, is to have a holding company effectively called ANZ Group. And then under that, three, three elements, a banking bit, which is all the normal stuff we know about in banking, a non-banking bit, which is kind of small at this stage, but they're hoping to grow it. But that's kind of the fintech, as they call it, financial tech sort of aspects of banking, settlements of, of uh, transactions and all that sort of stuff, but not directly uh, under the scope of um, the, the most stringent uh, regulations, if you like, because it doesn't have to be. And in large part, that's where their competitors in the new digital world sit. So in a sense, they're, they're actually putting themselves back onto a, a, an equal platform to those people. And then another bit, which is... Um, effectively a service company similar to the one I mentioned uh, with Telstra. So their non-banking bit, still modest, but they've got joint ventures in a few different areas. One is in payments, so, you know, like your uh, Zip and Afterpay and so on. There's a big company based in France called Worldline, which basically looks at all the payment settlement things that a, that a vendor might uh, want. And if you think about all the options you've got, a couple of Chinese credit cards, you've got Visa, MasterCard, Afterpay, you know, all of these different things for one single vendor. You don't want to have a few different terminals in that vendor's shop. You just need one and then settle them all through a common platform. So, so they've bought into that. They've got a fintech joint venture called 1835i, which is kind of looking at 
if you like, the, the new tech digital um, banking uh, services. And then they've got a kind of a startup-y sort of uh, company called Pollination, uh, which is looking at sustainable finance. So that they're looking at uh, processes by which you finance, you know, new new energy um, and other forms of, uh, of it, you know, sustainable sort of development stuff. So again, same reason as with Telstra, sort of disaggregate things so that they're not all under one onerous, complex, slow-moving system, but break them out into smaller parts. Again, no real difference to shareholders, but. The future promise is that you, you'll, you'll, you'll draw some wealth out of some of these. Mm. And uh, banks often have a problem with their legacy systems, their legacy back-end systems. And from memory, ANZ's got one of the oldest and most cumbersome. Correct. Are they, have they been updating that? Look, they have. Um, banks are probably behind the eight ball in terms of full digitisation. Uh, and in a sense these these holding companies give them the opportunity to at least get some of the things off the systems and into separate arrangements. But I'd say that's still probably a legacy problem because, as you can imagine, when you migrate to a new system, you make a mistake with somebody's money. <laughs> You're in deep, deep doggies because that makes it extremely difficult. So they're very conservative with respect to um, many of those things. And, of course, a lot of the transactions are going digital so they're having to move towards direct settlements uh, without the what you know as a consumer you see as a fairly sort of rapacious charges that they charge for these sorts of things and they take your money for three days before they settle them and so on but you just have to look at what happened to the ASX when they tried to go fully digital with their system where they basically messed it up and had to withdraw to realize what the risks are and also there's a whole issue with cyber security and so on with digital Yep. Yeah, you don't want to lose lose a couple of hundred million dollars on a system that doesn't end up working. No, and crypto hasn't exactly had sort of uh, good headlines lately, has it? <laughs> That's right. Um, okay, let's talk about the big miners. BHP and Rio have been star performers despite their attempts to divest themselves out of fossil fuels. They just can't help themselves from making money from it from them. Oh, and in spectacular returns, mm. aren't they? I mean, I think I think Rio's. Shareholder value increase last year was two hundred and fifty six percent, I think, and BHP's was about uh, fifty or thereabouts. So um, they've largely they've positioned themselves. I mean, both of them deal with you know, relatively few materials. I think uh, Rio has uh, iron ore, um, copper, and aluminium, and a few minerals. And BHP has iron ore, copper, nickel is the difference there. Coal. They've divested themselves of their petroleum. You know, that Woodside demerger was effectively trying to make all of the issues associated with um, shutting down petroleum uh, pushed into one vehicle, namely Woodside Energy now. They've still got metallurgical coal because there really isn't an alternative to making steel and so on just yet. And they've still got one asset in thermal coal in New South Wales because they couldn't sell it. But they did sell, as you remember, uh, they sold one of their major coal assets in Colombia to Glencore, uh, which was a bad timing because <laughs> Glencore made $4 billion out of that as the coal price went from 100 to 400 a tonne. So the timing couldn't have been worse for BHP. But their, their aim was long-term, we're out of the, the stuff that's, that's polluting the planet and we're in the stuff that will actually manage the whole transition to renewables. You look at those minerals, you need iron for steel, which is basically necessary for pretty well every aspect of uh, sustainable energy because you need to build wind tunnel, wind turbines and so on, all of which are made out of steel. You need copper and nickel and so on for all of the, the batteries and other technologies associated with the new, new energy. So they've, they've positioned themselves, I think, uh, you know, Australia has positioned itself as a fantastic resource. It's a reliable, uh, stable economy, huge, if not the biggest, second biggest assets in most of these things. And certainly iron ore and copper, we do very well. Nickel, we do very well. And some of the other minor um elements that are required in the various bits of your mobile phones and technology and so on are also in the ground in Australia like the PM. So so they've um, they've actually sort of swung from being the, the bad guys digging holes in the ground to being the good guys, basically enabling the whole new, new energy sustainable movement. So very interesting positioning. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk about SEEK and especially about ASA voting against the remuneration report but being quite impressed with some of the operations. 
Yes, well, Seek, Seek is one of those few Australian IT companies that's actually managed to pull off a good Asian expansion. So they've got the bulk of their revenue comes out of Australia and Asia. I think they're the biggest player in every market they operate in Asia. And we all know what Seek does. It kind of links um, people that want to get human resources with the human resources themselves. They... Um, They've done a really good job on on the ESG elements. You know, if you wanted to basically recruit slaves, what better than a platform like Seek to do it? So you've actually got to be on the lookout for, you know, human slavery issues associated with with a, a very easy digital way of finding them. So, and they've done that very well. They um, they've also made their errors in sales. We mentioned the, the Glencore purchase of some coal from. Um, from BHP, well, Seek actually sold off its its education business, which is called IDP, or um, to a separate company. <laughs> that they sold it off, I think, for three hundred million US, and it's now worth about four billion US. That that components because that took off so English language testing and all that sort of stuff. So, but apart from that, they've been a very entrepreneurial company run by a founder. So they've done the same sort of thing as we mentioned with the ANZ and. Uh, and Telstra, they've they've effectively set up a growth fund underneath Seek, not wholly owned, so it's slightly different. So they're looking for private capital to come in, and their very uh, keen-eyed founder entrepreneur Andrew Bassett is looking at opportunities for sort of uh, in this related areas to what Seek's in, but they'll seek other investors at the same time. So private equity typically. Uh, and that's done very well. I think in the last year that's grown 36%. They, don't, they take pains to say we're not in it for the short term. We're looking at long-term kind of new tech business developments that basically will fit uh, our portfolio and the same reasons. Just remove it from the day-to-day business so you're not dragged down by the sort of day-to-day issues and open it up to private equity in this case. So the shareholders don't own all of that, but the estimate is when the thing is complete, this, this year, this uh, financial year, we will own about 85% of that growth fund. Now, you mentioned our voting. Uh, These are one of the problems we have is um, uh, when, when we look at some companies, we have kind of guidelines about what sort of transparency the remuneration packages should be look like and also the quantum. You know, there's a sort of a benchmark in the marketplace about what everybody else is getting. And arguably, it's too high, but it's what everybody gets and you can't really change the whole tide. They don't overpay, but they don't have hurdles the same way we would like. For example, there's short-term incentives, which is typically set so that uh, a CEO would have a lot of money at risk. If, if he or she meets the, the target guidelines of the company, they get some portion of that short-term incentive in one year and then they get a whole whack three or four years down the track. Typically, there's a hurdle on that short-term one that says unless you meet blah, 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 uh, which are financial hurdles, you don't get it or you get a smaller portion. Theirs is just deferred. (laughs) So you get it irrespective of how they've done. And they argue quite strongly that that's that's kind of better for their business because it's more fast-moving and so on. We disagree and so does at least one other major proxy collector because they never get more than about 80% for that, which means at least one big... A collector of proxies on behalf of superannuation funds typically has it sort of agrees with our position. So look, it's not it's not terminal, um, but it's something we keep sort of nudging these companies because if you've got a very unusual remuneration structure, it is open to to abuse if you change the personalities. We trust these people, but you know you just have to swap out the CEO or the swap out the chair, and the whole thing suddenly changes. And they've got this wonderful vehicle by which they can reward themselves. And you don't want to legitimise this practice as an example to other companies, I'd assume. No, well. exactly right. So, yeah. so in a sense, you know, we're a little bit more conservative than they are, but we're just trying to protect shareholders' interests so that we're not overpaying them. So, yet. overall, how is you? How do you feel about this current reporting season? Any anything standing out for you? Look, I think the one thing um, that does stand out is that ESG is now mainstream. So, the idea of reporting more than just financial results is literally built into the DNA of most Australian companies. And according to international reports, we do the reporting quite well and also the accountabilities. And quite a few companies lock in various elements of people's remuneration into that 
performance against greenhouse gas emissions and so on. Telstra's sort of leading there as well, actually. They've, they've locked in a significant portion of the CEO's pay on meeting greenhouse gas reductions. They've got a plan to halve those by 2030, which is quite significant because they've got big energy guzzling data centres and all the rest of it, as you can imagine. Um, and many other companies, like if you read the, if you want to read a really comprehensive um, ESG report, just read the BHP one. It's, it's, it's very clear, it, it brilliantly outlined as to why they're doing it to try and deal with some of the scepticism of some of the, uh, the sort of anti-global um, warming sort of people. Demonstrates that if you don't do all the sorts of things of looking after the, the indigenous people on the lands that you mine, you get kind of a Rio effect of the Dukan Caves thing. If you don't look after your employees, you become a non-employee of choice and therefore you don't get the best talent. And as we all know, talent in people is one of the biggest resource limitations at the moment. So they need to get the very best IT people, the best people that are the mining industry and the best um, HR people and so on. So they, they make a very good case, uh, and which I think everybody else would agree with, that if you're not looking at the bigger picture that ESG tries to present, um, you will not get the opportunities that companies who are, are doing that do yeah. get. Yeah. That, that's just a great overview of every aspect of ESG that you just um, outlined there very quickly. No, well, it's, a, it's a very, I mean, it's, it, it comes with lots of hype and there's greenwashing and everything else that goes along with it. But if you cut all that away, it is really about saying you're preparing yourself for the future by doing kind of the right thing by everybody there. Yeah, and, and everybody is also committed to these energy targets, but that's a, that's a portion of it only. Yeah. It is because there's a social and governance, and as you say, dealing Correct. with Indigenous lands and um, the, attracting the best talent as well. Yeah, and I think BHP points out, I, I, I may have this number wrong, but I think they employ something like 8% of their employees are Indigenous. So, so that's in Canada and in Australia and other areas where they operate. And, you know, they've just bought a, um, a, a potash mine in Canada, and Rio's madly out there. They've just bought some more copper assets in Canada, strangely enough, with Canadian CEOs so <laughs> using their relationship. And, you know, just a small anecdote, we used to attack, not attack, we used to sort of confront Rio with the fact that, that they were a very white, male and pale-looking board um, and their biggest customer was Chinese and did they really understand the Chinese culture or the Chinese way of doing business? And they said, oh, we have a subcommittee that, you know, we hire people to do that, um, you know. And I said, so it's, is it the same as hiring a subcommittee of women to tell you what women think, you know, or would you prefer to have them on the board? Two years later, they've now recruited a guy called Dominic Barton, who was the Canadian ambassador to China for many years on the board. So, you know, we do have, sometimes we have an effect, we think, yeah. Fantastic. Okay, Mike Roby, thank you very much for your time today. No worries. And it's nice to talk to you again, Phil. Okay, and now we're moving on to Lewis Gomes. Lewis Gomes is the New South Wales Company Monitoring Chair for the Australian Shareholders Association. Thanks for joining me today, Lewis. Uh, pleasure being here, Phil. Okay, so we're going to talk and now about, we've got a couple of companies we've got on the list, and Goodman Group is someone that you're interested in. Why is it such a successful company with an outrageous remuneration report? Well, why is it successful? Well, it's essentially develops uh, what you might call industrial warehousing, but it's had a very uh, successful strategy of joining with what they call capital partners, who are basically superannuation funds and, and other big investors. So the capital partners provide about 75% of the funds required to develop these industrial warehouses whereas Goodman gets the full 100% of the management fee and it gets a lot of the development profit. So they're essentially, you could say, using other people's money to develop these uh, very high-tech industrial warehousing. They're not your old-fashioned shed with a couple of forklifts. These are really high-tech. A lot of them are in a city, uh, you know, the last mile emphasis that we have these days. So it's been a very clever strategy. They're very diversified. They've got operations in Hong Kong, United States, Brazil and Europe. Uh, so they're a great Australian success story. And as an indication, and we'll come to remuneration in a minute, but if we look at their five-year 
profit record, their, their profit has more than doubled over the last five years. Their share price has gone up by a factor of two and a half to three times. Their share price has come back a bit this calendar year just because interest rates have gone up and, and they've come down a bit like everybody else. Yeah, the whole sector's really been affected by that. Correct. Yeah. So that's the good news and, and they've got a strong um, development pipeline in front of me. They've got, like their biggest client is Amazon, for example, and DHL. You know, we're talking about world-leading companies. So it's um, a very successful business and they do it very well. So why is the remuneration outrageous? Well, as I said, profit has, has doubled over that period, the distributions to shareholders has gone up from 26 cents per share in FY17 to 30 cents in FY22. The distribution hasn't changed in the last four years. It's still 30 cents. And if you look at the share price, which is currently around $18, it was up to $27 at the beginning of the year. But you're looking at, at a yield of a, a bit over 1%. Now, no one's going to invest in shares for a, a yield of, of 1%. To counter that, however, there's been a significant increase in the, the price of the shares. They've gone up from a bit under $8 in FY17 to now about $18. Goodman sells itself really as a growth stock, not as an income stock. The problem for um, ASA members who are, uh, are mostly looking for income uh, with some capital growth, the, the only way you can get a decent return on, on your um, Goodman shares is to sell them. And then depending on, on your tax arrangements, you, you may be paying capital gains tax, but every time you sell a share, of course, you get less distribution. So you're on a downward spiral. So, you know, we think it's a bit of a raw deal for shareholders, uh, notwithstanding the fact that the share price itself has done very well. But the remuneration for um, senior executives and Greg Goodman in particular is primarily based on earnings per share growth. Their long-term incentive is 75% of that is based on earnings per share growth. And as I said, the, the operating profit has doubled over the last five years. So earnings per share has doubled over the last five years. So you're looking at extraordinary rewards to executives because of the, the doubling of the earnings per share over the last five years. And to, to give you an indication, if we just look at Greg Goodman, and Greg's a great guy, he's a fantastic businessman, and, and he's really driven the growth of Goodman Group. So no criticism of Greg himself. But if we look at the value of the shares that have vested through his long-term incentive arrangement, back in FY17, uh, they were worth $7 million, a reasonable reward for a very successful CEO. FY22, that figure had increased to $43 million. So his his remuneration through his, his share rewards has gone up from $7 million to $43 million. It's not bad. That, that's, that's a big increase. Not too shabby. Not too shabby at all. You know, whereas the average shareholder who's hung on to his shares has seen almost no growth in income at all. So the reason why the share awards to the CEO have been so high is partly based on how Goodman have valued the shares for the purpose of these awards. And Goodman historically have used what they call fair value or economic value, which is effectively discounting the price of, of the shares at the time they, they vest. Now, most companies, probably 90% of companies on the ASX, value their share awards on the, the price of the shares on the share market. Goodman used this, this cute bit of mathematics called uh, the Black and Scholes formula to basically calculate a net present value of these shares because these shares are, are awarded three or four years in the future. And that notional share value comes down to somewhere between 6 and $8. So the, the value of the um, LTI grant is, is a dollar value. It's, it's a, a effectively a multiple of their fixed remuneration. 
But if you divide that dollar value by a share price that's a half to one third what it is on the market, then you're going to get two to three times more shares. So that's why the remuneration is, in our view, excessive. We've been hammering away at Goodman now for three or four years over this so-called economic value versus face value. And at last, they've agreed to switch over to using face value. We've had a small victory. We still can't make any impression on them in terms of the uh, distributions to shareholders. Their reason, and it's a fair enough reason, they're growing the business dramatically. So they retain more and more of their operating profit to, to invest back in the business. So the distribution as a percentage of the earnings has been falling over the last five years. So the, the profits are really built into the share price, not into the distributions. Yeah. And it's interesting. You, you mentioned uh, just a little while ago about warehousing, how different warehousing has become over the last 10 or so years and how it's now, it's about having the space for very high-tech robotic infrastructure to be put into, as well as being uh, located in very sweet spots logistically, you know, between rail and ports and roads and so forth. Um, do you see that this is part of the, the strategy and um, how Goodman operates? Yeah, it's very much been part of their success. They, they identified this, well, there's two trends, uh, as, as you noted, one is the fact that these warehouses, and that's really not a good term, have become very sophisticated. A lot of technology, mostly robotic activity or computer controlled. The packaging, labelling, the dispatching is all computer controlled. But secondly, the, the importance of location. I mean, we, <laughs> through our own experience, my wife orders a lot of stuff online and it's amazing these days how quickly it turns up. It can be the same day or the next day, and it can, you can only do that if, if you've got your warehouses close to your customers. So identifying sites, acquiring the sites, getting your development approvals through, all these things take a long time. It can take up to 10 years to get a development actually complete from when you first identify the site. So that's... You know, it's a, 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 it's a long-term uh, strategy that Goodman has, and they've been, I, I'd say, they're, they're, they're close to being a world leader. They're certainly far and away the best in Australia in, in doing that industrial warehousing. So the Commonwealth Bank. now Commonwealth you, Bank. You attended the AGM, and um, apparently CBA structured the meeting so that they wouldn't have any interruptions, but um, it didn't work out that way. Well, they... <laughs> They tried to. Let's just reflect briefly on the Commonwealth Bank. Like Goodman, a very successful business. Of the four big banks, it's easily the best and has been the most successful since over the last five years, since the financial uh, inquiry that was held, the Royal Commission into the behaviour of banks. The share price of Commonwealth Bank has gone up 50% in the last five years. NAB has gone nowhere, still the same price as it was five years ago. Westpac, which used to be the leading bank, its share price over five years has dropped from $30 down to $20, very significant drop. And ANZ hasn't done much better. It's dropped from $28 to, to $23. Now, why, why has Commonwealth Bank been so successful? Well, it went through a horror stretch during the Royal Commission. It's chairman at the time was forced to resign and the CEO was effectively forced to resign as well. And Catherine Livingston, who, who was um, one of the directors at that time, became chairman and uh, a chap called Matt Common became the CEO. He had been head of retail bank. Now, those two individuals, Catherine and, and, and Matt, proved an absolutely winning combination. Catherine cleaned out the board she instituted much more rigour around financial control and behaviour. And Matt Common is the same. He is, he's a banker through and through, but he has a real people focus. You know, you, you'd, you'd say he's got a very high EQ as well as IQ. And Commonwealth Bank really focused, I would say, more on culture than on being what you might call traditional professional bankers. 
And I think it's that culture and that focus on good behaviour, looking after your customers, looking after your employees, doing the right thing, even if it costs you money, um, has been the reason why they've been so successful. So, you know, in the past, we used to focus primarily on financials. These days, a lot of the focus of the ASA is on the quality of the directors, their behaviour, and the quality of the, the senior management, and in particular, the CEO and his immediate team. And we've seen recent examples where that's gone right off the rails with Star Entertainment, AGL, Crown Casino, even AMP. So Commonwealth Bank is, is a great success story, and you'd think they'd be pleased to talk about that success at their annual general meeting. Now, the banks have come under a criticism from some of the climate activists for lending to oil and gas producers. Now, it's only a tiny part of their loan book and the banks, and we talk to all of them, see that there is a need during this transition towards renewables, which frankly is going to take a decade or more. The banks obviously see a need to support Australian industries and, and Australian suppliers of energy to get us through the transition, otherwise the lights go out. So Commonwealth Bank, and I think it was their new chairman, not Catherine Livingston, retired earlier this year, I I think he, he took the view that he could cut down on the activity of these climate activists by having effectively an in person meeting only. Most companies these days with the benefit of technology have what we call hybrid meetings. So you can physically attend or you can join through through your computer in the comfort of your home. You can vote. Uh, you can ask questions if you're a shareholder. And it's it's very interactive and, and you, you maximise your audience. And the banks, uh, particularly the Commonwealth Bank, it's, it's one of the most widely held companies in Australia. Lots of mums and dads own shares in Commonwealth Bank. So by having an in-person meeting only, you're excluding, you know, something like three quarters of the population from participating in the meeting. Now, as it happened, the meeting was held in in Melbourne at the Melbourne Cricket Ground, but the climate activists realised that this was an opportunity to to really grandstand. So dozens and dozens of them turned up physically at the meeting. They started singing songs, chanting songs, asking endless repetitive questions. And in in our view, the, the, the attempt to control the climate activists backfired. And none of the other banks are doing uh, in-person meetings only. They're all doing hybrid meetings. They, they will all have issues with climate activists, whether it was the new chairman being a little bit nervous, a little bit inexperienced, I think might be something to do with it. He, he's he's, he's uh, risk averse. Uh, risk averse, yeah. I, I think he, he was, and he, he's kind of admitted to us when we met with him, he, he, he was Paul O'Malley. He's a tremendous guy, great, great operator. He used to run, run uh, Blue Scope. But he clearly felt nervous following Catherine Livingston's footsteps. And I think this was an attempt to limit the, the, the cannon fire that he might have been subject to, but it, it didn't work. And the, so uh, that was disappointing. It descended um, into chaos, I believe, the meeting. It was a bit that way, mm-hmm. it was, which was a pity because it's a, a great story. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of Australia's greatest companies, and um, I, th- I think they just could have managed the um, annual general meeting uh, more openly. Well, let's move on to Origin Energy. Well, that's another interesting story. Um, A tale of two companies, I believe. <laughs> yeah, that's the way I've I've described it. Just to, to, to recap for people who may not be quite clear what Origin Energy is about. It, yeah, please. It, it does run two businesses. One is uh, essentially uh, extracting methane gas from areas of Queensland where uh, this gas just naturally resides. They then liquefy it in giant refrigerators at Curtis Island near Gladstone in Queensland and then they put it on board ships and send it off to Korea and Japan and elsewhere. And particularly with current gas prices being what they are, they make an awful lot of money. I've described the the LNG business of origin as uh, they're rivers of gold. Uh, They just 
it just comes out of the ground. They just drill a hole. It comes out of the ground. They stick it into a refrigerator, onto a ship, off it goes and collect all this money back again. Their other business is essentially energy retailing. It's, it's what they call energy markets. So it's essentially a business where they, they sell electricity and gas to retail people, mums and dads, to commercial operations, you know, shopping centres and all the rest, and to industrial users, you know, ranging from small factories to, to very large energy users. And that business has, has really suffered in the last five years. Just to give you an idea, what they call EBITDA, earnings before interest, tax depreciation and amortisation, we'd call that gross margin. Back in FY18, their gross margin in energy markets, this, this is the retailing side of the business, was $1.8 billion. By the time they got to FY22, it was $365 million. So it's gone down from from uh, 1800 to to 365. So a very significant reduction. In the meantime, the uh, EBITDA from gas has gone up from 1.5 billion to close to 2 billion. That was FY22. Now, as we all know, the gas price has gone up a lot since June 22. When when we look at the results for FY23, we'll find that the gas margin has probably doubled. And I should say its share price has, has halved since FY8 and gone from $10 down to $5. But what happened after the annual general meeting, uh, unbeknownst to us ordinary shareholders, was that um, uh, Brookfield, a major Canadian investor with a private equity group called EIG, who specialise in investing in oil and gas businesses, has announced an offer for origin and the proposal if it goes through if it's approved by the regulatory authorities and by the treasurer because they're both foreign takeovers brookfield will take the energy markets business and eig will take the gas business as i said the 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 gas business is a very straightforward business that that'll be easy for eig to manage the energy markets is the challenging business as i said the the margin has has dropped significantly. And what Brookfield have said, that's the business that they want, which is interesting, a business that's close to losing money and and has tremendous challenges in terms of of hedging and uh, all sorts of complicated financial arrangements that that go on in the energy market. Now, Brookfield have said they're prepared to put $20 billion into the energy market's business of origin to get it ready for the renewable market. And um, when we were preparing for this interview, you did mention that $20 billion is not something that will be found on the Australian market, on the promise of a renewable future. Definitely not. There's there's 1.75 billion shares on the market in, in Origin Energy. So if you take 20 billion and divide by 1.75 billion, that's about $11.50 for every share. So to get $20 billion, you'd be asking each shareholder to stump up an extra $11.50 per share to put into the company. Now, the current share price has gone up because of this offer. It's somewhere between 7 and $8. But if you're a shareholder with a share worth 7 to $8, are you going to be prepared to put in another $11 for no obvious additional return? The short answer is no, you wouldn't. This is the challenge facing not just Origin, but also AGL, Energy Australia and other energy retailers, that the capital that they need to get themselves match fit for the renewable energy future, the capital needs are enormous and well beyond the uh, capital markets within Australia. The big challenge for Australia, people think, well, yes, Wind doesn't cost us anything. The sun doesn't cost us anything. <laughs> but, but to get that into electricity and then to get that out to, to the mums and dads and the businesses, that's where the costs are. So I wish Brookfield all the best. Uh, I mean, I personally, I hope this, this takeover goes through because I, I think it will provide an opportunity for the retailing side of the business to really go ahead in leaps and bounds and, and 
it, they'll they'll leave the AGLs and and, and Energy Australia's uh, in in their wake. I think if they uh, if they succeed. Do you have any inkling ab- about what their plans would be? I mean, it, you're kind of describing what sounds like a failing business with a very uncertain future. They must have some sort of plan in place if they're willing to risk that kind of capital. Yeah, I'd, look, I'd love to know what their plan is. Mm. Um, when you, I, I said before, the, the gross margin in FY22 was $365 million. Mm. That's not much of a return. On $20 uh, billion, if, yeah. If, if, you know, if you're investing billions of dollars, mm. um, you, you've got to lift that, that margin significantly. Mm. And I don't quite know how they do that because the, the market, as you know, is very fractured. There's lots of wind farms, there's lots of solar farms, there's um, lots of middlemen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got distribution and transmission issues. Um, the carbon credit got, market. Yeah, and, and you, as I mentioned before, hedging. Mm-hmm. Let's not go into the detail on hedging. That's a very complicated business in its own right. The, the government, of course, is trying to reduce energy bills. Now, if you're going to invest $20 billion dollars, in a business and and increase your margins, it's going to be hard to to not increase your prices at some point. There, there'll be cost savings. I can't see how they can get their 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 money back. Having said that, Brookfield are very experienced and very smart operators. They wouldn't be doing this on a whim. They'd have given it a lot of thought. They did make a uh, uh, an early offer for AGL. Origin has done a lot of work itself getting ready for the thrust towards renewables, but they are capital constrained. You know, I, I wish Brookfield all the best. I hope, I hope they succeed. Um, I'd, I'd be sorry to, to lose the integrated gas business from Australia, from Australian hands, because I, I think the world will be wanting LNG for, I'd suggest, decades to come. It, it's not going to disappear. So let's have a quick talk just to wind up about Lendlease. Lendlease. And, uh, yeah, the problems that Lendlease seem to be suffering at the moment. Struggling in a new strategy, I've got the notes here. <laughs> yeah, look, it, it's, it's a company that's really had some headwinds in recent years. Its share price over five years has gone from $20 to $9 back in June 22. Currently, the share price is in the $7 range. It's been had a very successful history, mainly in big property development projects, particularly in a city developments. Think of Barangaroo in Sydney. They've done other much larger inner city developments in, in London and, and Milan. And, and New, you know, York, not, New York, the World Trade yeah, Center yeah. site, yeah. Yeah, uh, multi-billion dollar projects. Now, about five years ago, they decided to diversify into what we could call civil engineering construction. This is roads and tunnels and all that sort of stuff. They bought a couple of Australian companies that had a history in that area. But Lend-Lease itself had no experience in civil construction. To cut a long story short, they lost money hand over fist. I just don't think they had the right people running the business and I don't think they really knew what was going on. They ended up writing, effectively writing off three or four billion dollars. They paid a billion dollars for these companies, and basically gave them away for nothing after three or four years. And in the meantime, had significant, very substantial losses on projects like North Connects in Sydney and elsewhere. So that really knocked them around for quite a few years. They're still in FY22. They're still writing down residual obligations on some of their projects. Then, of course, COVID came along. As I said before, this is a business that mainly focuses on on high-rise building development, inner-city stuff. Now, if you've got to suddenly socially distance on a 50-storey building, it means reducing your workforce to maybe a third of what you would normally have. So the logistics and practicalities of doing their work became extremely difficult. Then supply chain problems came along. There were all sorts of problems. So their traditional business really suffered primarily because of COVID, not because of anything that Lend-Lease did. 
So um, Lend-Lease thought, well, what do we do next? Obviously, engineering construction is not our game. All this development work's becoming harder and harder. And as I mentioned with Goodman, the, the issue with these big developments is that they're, they're becoming harder to get all the, all the approvals in place. You're dealing with local councils. They'd prefer to have low-cost housing instead of multi-million dollar apartments. <laughs> Lendlease thought, well, where do we go next? So they've pivoted towards what they call investment, which is a little bit like the Goodman model where they will team up with superannuation funds and other investment houses and essentially project manage um, these redevelopment projects. They'll take a management fee, they'll take a development fee, but a lot of the financial risk will be left with the, the capital partners, the, the investors. Now, the big unknown is, will that work out for them? Now, they had their annual general meeting only a month or so ago. Their new CEO announced the strategy, but it, it didn't go over all that well. And um, as I mentioned, the share price actually fell subsequent to the AGM. Uh, I, I think the market is a bit sceptical as to whether this pivot will will work. I, I hope it does work for them. I, I think Lend-Lease, to a degree, have been caught by changes in the marketplace. Inner city living is not something that necessarily is as popular today as it was before COVID. People are not going to shopping centres as much as they were. Now, they might do um, as time progresses and people become more more tolerant of COVID, um, but there's been significant changes in, in, in the markets that Lend-Lease has traditionally operated and I think it's sort of struggling to find its its place in the sunshine is, is my view. I, I wish them all the best. They're a great company. They've got great people. They've got a very good board. Back when they bought the engineering businesses, we were very critical of their board. It was stacked with lawyers and accountants who knew nothing about engineering construction, didn't even know anything about building development or in a city development. And they had a lawyer as a CEO. So was it any wonder they didn't quite know what they were doing? But they've moved beyond that. They've got a very uh, strong and, and diversified board now. They've got a new CEO who I think is very, very focused. They've still got a great executive team. They they just need a few things to go right for them. Mm. And just uh, tying together a couple of uh, CEOs, I believe the former CEO of Lendlease went to, was it the went to Crown? Oh, Crown, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> and and of course Crown got taken over, so um, he got paid a whole bunch of money mm-hmm. <laughs> to to take an early uh, earlier time. And interesting guy, Steve McCann. I said he's a lawyer. He is. Yeah, but um, <clears throat> he's a real numbers man. He he um, is almost what you'd call a professional poker player. He loves a punt, I believe. <laughs> he loves a punt. He he mm. can calculate the odds on on horses mm-hmm. uh, quicker than any computer can. You know, <laughs> if he wasn't a lawyer, he would have been a bookmaker. <laughs> <laughs> Very smart guy um, yeah. and a real deal maker, but. Um, I, I think he's just probably enjoying retirement now with his stash of cash somewhere in the bank. And the races somewhere. to and the races to follow. Or yeah, maybe he's off to the races, who knows? Fantastic. Lewis Gomes, thank you very much for joining me today. A pleasure, Phil. Always uh, always happy to share our, our thoughts and uh, all the best for you and uh, and your team for Christmas. Thank you and you too. Okay. Bye Lewis. Thanks, Phil.